Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code WELCOME to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code WELCOME at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com. Here we are halfway through the week and the day after the Republican debate, the fourth Republican debate, so we'll be talking all about the Republican debate, the latest from the University of Missouri+. Plus. Uh, a very interesting TV appearance that I had with Huffington Post Live. We'll get to all of that. I'm Ben Shapiro, and this is The Ben Shapiro Show. Stop. Tend to demonize people who don't care about your feelings. Alrighty, so the big fourth Republican debate happened last night. It was not as interesting as the previous debates because the moderators did their job. They stayed out of the way. The previous debates were sort of like watching a food fight. It was, it was entertaining, but didn't really accomplish a lot. Last night, you sort of got a better picture of who the candidates were. They were given time to talk. The, the rules were that you had 90 seconds to answer the questions and 60 seconds for follow-ups. That's a long time to talk. Most people don't think of how they speak in terms of time length. For those of us who are in radio or TV, you do think of, of how much you're talking in terms of time length. 90 seconds is a very long time. Now, my words per minute ratio is extremely high, so in 90 seconds, I could probably do about three paragraphs of text. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of, of room to expound. And for some folks, that's good, and for some folks, that's bad. And to give kind of my brief debate grades, I would say the big winners last night were Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. I thought both of them did very well. I thought the big losers were Jeb Bush, as always because he just is a big loser, and there's no way around it. And we'll get to all of, of what everybody had to say in just a moment. Jeb Bush was a big loser. Uh, he's a dead man walking. He doesn't know it. I was joking with, with Lindsey earlier that we should really just, we should recut Jeb Bush's campaign trailer as the sixth sense, where he's just walking around, and he's actually dead, and everybody in the world knows it, except for Jeb Bush. He's kind of wandering around and interacting with people, but they're not really interacting with him, but he thinks they are. Now, that's Jeb Bush's candidacy at this point. He needs four more exclamation points, I think, to really put the oomph into his candidacy again. So Jeb Bush did not have a good night. Rand Paul didn't have a good night. He's, he had a couple of great moments, actually, Rand Paul, but then he proceeded to actually blow them wide open with his isolationism. So he had a bad night. And John Kasich is just insufferable. The man is just insufferable. John Kasich last night said that when he was in Washington, D.C., he stepped on every toe in Washington, D.C. And then to prove it, he walked around the stage stomping on everyone's feet last night and then went into the audience in search of more toes upon which to stomp. He is unbelievably obnoxious, but... His father was a mailman. So breaking news, his father was a mailman, John Kasich. The most important point uh, is that his father carried mail on his back. Uh, John Kasich is, is basically John Huntsman if you hate charm and also like social disorders. That's, that's the John Kasich candidacy. All right, so we'll jump into the, the debate itself. We'll start with the lower tier debate. The lower tier debate was actually a bunch of people who are pretty well qualified. It was Bobby Jindal, the current governor of Louisiana, and Chris Christie, the current governor of New Jersey. And it was Mike Huckabee, the former governor of Arkansas, and Rick Santorum, the former senator from Pennsylvania, all of whom are, are between 1% and 2% in the national polls, don't have a lot of support. The two big winners were Bobby Jindal and Chris Christie. They're winners for different reasons. The, Jindal was attacking Christie incessantly. That makes him a winner with sort of his right-wing base, the people who he's looking to win in Iowa. Chris Christie is trying to get establishment support, so should Jeb fall, some of that support falls to him, not just to Marco Rubio. And to that end, he was making his entire case about how terrible Hillary Clinton was. So we'll start with Bobby Jindal taking Chris Christie and turning him over his 
knee and putting that ample weight over his knee and then spanking Chris Christie on national television. Here's Bobby Jindal going after Christie for his record in the state of New Jersey. Chris, look, I'll give you a ribbon for participation and a juice box, but in the real world, it's about results. It's about actually cutting government spending, not just talking about cutting government spending. Yeah. Governor Jindal, thank you. At that point, Chris Christie accepted the juice box and asked for three more. Um, but the, Jindal, Jindal did a good job uh, in this debate of, of excoriating Christie's record uh, because Christie's record is, is not particularly conservative or at least not that conservative in New Jersey. Christie, meanwhile, had other priorities. He was busy going after Hillary Clinton. His whole goal here was to kind of soar above the debate like a, a free blimp just flying in the wind. And, uh, and he succeeded in, in that. Here's Chris Christie going after Hillary Clinton while ignoring attacks on him. Uh, by Bobby Jindal. But the bottom line is, believe me, Hillary Clinton's coming for your wallet, everybody. Don't worry about Huckabee or Jindal. Worry about her. <laughs> and, well, he knows his crowd. I mean, everybody hates Hillary Clinton, so that, that, one's a, that one's a big winner for him. So Christie had a fine night. Jindal had a fine night. None of it's particularly relevant. If somebody's set to rise, it is Christie because Jeb Bush is falling and some of that establishment money has to go someplace. Okay, now let's move on to the debate that actually mattered. The, the, the major debate, nothing really changed in this debate. People who you thought were going to be pretty good were pretty good. People who you thought were going to stink basically stunk. Uh, and, uh, and nothing really changed. But there were a couple of moments that were, that were telling. So Ted Cruz, for example, on immigration, this was a great moment for Ted Cruz because Cruz is making a play for the Trump voter. He's making the rightmost play for the immigration crowd. He understands that the big contrast between him and Rubio is really only on one issue, and that is immigration. And so he took a very right-wing stance on immigration, and he was very articulate about it. Here's what the senator from Texas had to say about immigration. I understand that when the mainstream media covers immigration, it doesn't often see it as an economic issue. But I can tell you for a million of, um, of Americans at home watching this, it is a very personal economic issue. And I will say the politics of it would be very, very different if a bunch of lawyers or bankers were crossing the Rio Grande. Or if a bunch of people with journalism degrees were coming over and driving down the wages in the press. See. Then we would see stories about the economic calamity that is befalling our nation. And I will say, for those of us who believe people ought to come to this country legally and we should enforce the law, we're tired of being told it's anti-immigrant. It's offensive. Okay, this is, this, is Ted, this is peak Ted Cruz. This is the best Ted Cruz will ever be on a debate stage. And, and you can see when he's less scripted, he's actually better. Ted Cruz's big problem in these debates has been that he is too scripted, that when he speaks to camera, it feels insincere. When he did his closing statement, I didn't see his closing statement because I was giving a speech last night, but I've been told that Ted Cruz basically told a story about how his father came over from Cuba and he had the wind in his hair and the sky was full of birds and he could feel the sea salt brushing his face and then he could see the tyranny behind him but freedom ahead of him. And, uh, and that's awful stuff. I mean, it's just, it's, it's purple, it's, it's gross, it's, it's vulgar. It's just, it, it's not good stuff. He doesn't do it as well. As Rubio does the my personal story portion. He, story time with Marco Rubio is better than story time with Ted Cruz, basically. If you have to pick somebody who's going to be your Mr. Rogers neighborhood story time guy, it's Marco Rubio. I don't elect my presidents based on that, but Marco Rubio's whole, you know, I, I, my, my father and mother worked in the back of a bar so I could, so I could stand in front of you today, that, that whole routine. That's, that's Rubio's specialty. It's not Cruz's specialty. Cruz's specialty is when he fights. That's what's made him popular. He should double down on that. That's where he lives. And you can see that right there. Meanwhile, 
So Cruz had a good night. I, I will say one thing about Ted Cruz. One of Cruz's big problems is that he is too honest, and so he answers questions. Right? What he doesn't understand is that these debates are basically designed so that you can reach out to an audience. They're not designed so that you can answer the moderators. So there are a couple of points at which Neil Cavuto was really asking for details from Ted Cruz. Particularly, Cruz was asked about, would he have bailed out the banks during the financial downturn? He said no, which is a good answer. And then Cavuto follows up, and he says no again. And, and it just keeps kind of going round and round in circles. And Cruz is focused on answering Cavuto's question when he really should have just moved off the point and, and re redirected to something else. And the same thing happened when he was asked about his tax plan. He got into details of his tax plan. Now, folks, I'm about as versed on this stuff as anybody in politics. I mean, I'm not Jim Pethokoukas at, at American Enterprise Institute, but I'm pretty versed on, on the various candidates and, and their tax plans. And even I was, was nodding off at this point. I mean, when he starts to get into the vagaries of corporate tax rates versus individual tax rates, he starts talking about 16% versus 14%. Everybody was waiting for Ben Carson to attack them with a hammer just to be put out of their misery. I mean, that's, that's basically how bad that part of it was. And this is the problem with Cruz. You don't have to answer the question. Understand who your audience is. Understand who your audience is. Now, meanwhile, somebody who always understands his audience is Donald Trump. This is why Trump is doing well because Donald Trump understands his audience. Donald Trump had, had a couple of fantastic, fantastic moments. He had one moment that was really awful, and he had a couple of moments that were really fantastic. Trump is a roller coaster. He is. I mean, he's, he's all the highs and he's all the lows, and you'll get all of it in the course of one debate. Yeah, the low was when he was talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, the, the TPP, Obama trade, and he was saying that it should include in there provisions about currency manipulation with regard to China. And Rand Paul promptly turned to him and said, you understand that China isn't a signatory to that treaty. And, and Donald Trump looked at him utterly befuddled, uh, and, and his hair even stopped moving for a second. And, and it was just kind of dead, awkward silence, like the silence that you have during a date when your date tells you that, that she once dated you know, a member of the, of, the, of the St. Louis Rams or something. Like, it's just it's awkward and random, and you don't know what, what's going on. That, that's, that's exactly how Trump looked. It was, it was a weird first date moment. He looked, and it, they kind of froze and stared at each other, and it got real awkward. There was some creepy sexual tension, and then it moved on. And, uh, and so that was, that was Trump's low moment. Then there was Trump's high moment, Trump's better moment during the debate. <laughs> this was, I thought, the best moment in, in the debate, period, was John Kasich who just is an obnoxious human being. I mean, John Kasich, if you look up obnoxious in the dictionary, there is a picture of John Kasich and his fat mouth blabbing. The worst moment in the entire debate is when John Kasich started lecturing the American people about how the, how the president of the United States has to care. And when they're shooting victims, he has to be empathetic, and he has to care, and he has to care. And he has to care so much with your money that he's going to care. He actually got booed by the audience. I mean, the audience was, was sick of hearing from John Kasich about how much he cares when he's busy yelling, I mean, like wandering around the stage yelling at people. He's not even like a charming drunk uncle like Joe Biden. He's like your belligerent drunk uncle who you never want to see ever. He just shows up at the family barbecues once a year because you have to because grandma will be pissed if he doesn't show. And then he shows up and he drinks heavily and sits in the corner muttering to himself about, about how the bears suck. And then eventually he gets so mad that he stands up and he just starts yelling at you for no reason and, and, then, and then asks you to bring him another beer. That's John Kasich. So John Kasich was doing this routine last night, bloviating, stepping all over people, being obnoxious, and, uh, and Donald Trump just shreds him. Uh, and then Donald Trump, giving you a great two-for-one, proceeds to shred Jeb Bush just by... Donald Trump, it's, it's really funny, <laughs> the way Trump handles Bush. Bush is the, Jeb is the best thing that ever happened to Trump. If Jeb isn't in this race, I don't know that, tr that Trump is ahead, seriously. And the reason I say that is because every time Trump slams anyone, 
it's so gratuitous. He goes out of his way <laughs> to slap Jeb Bush. I mean, he's like a teenage boy who's who's taking a baseball bat to a mailbox for no reason. <laughs> he's driving down the street. There's a mailbox. I got a bat back here. I might as well. You know, that's that's what Trump is like with, with Jeb Bush. Anytime he has the capacity <laughs> to slap a Jeb Bush, he just does it. So what you'll see here is that he and Kasich get into it. And then for no reason at all, Trump just turns around and beats the living crap out of Jeb Bush. <laughs> but he does it in the most offhanded, just dismissive fashion. It's It's... Really, really entertaining. Here is J uh, Donald Trump taking on John Kasich and Jeb Bush. They moved a million and a half people out. We have no choice. We have no choice. Oh, so he just Thank you. Just let me just we Governor, have grown, you, should, you should let Jeb speak. We have grown. No, it's unnecessary. In the state of Ohio. Okay, so so you can see Kasich the whole time he was this belligerent. The entire the entire debate he was this belligerent. And when when he's being this belligerent and everybody is groaning at the belligerence, and then and then Trump doesn't hit him by saying, John, you really ought to sit down and shut up. Instead, Trump's hit him Trump hits him by saying, You really ought to let Jeb over here. Poor Jeb. Just sitting here, being his sad self. You really ought to let him talk once in a while. It's just sad. I mean, and 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 you get the feeling that I mean this is how you know, there's two kind of metaphors that come to mind or, or similes that come to mind. This is like when, when you have you have a younger sibling who isn't participating in the group effort and mom says, really, you need to let your younger sibling play with the group, right? That's exactly what this was. Trump saying to Kasich, you really need to let Jeb, poor Jeb, just sitting over here. I know you think he's too little, but he can handle it. He'll be, he'll be fine. Right? There, there was that feeling. Then there's also the feeling that there's all, whenever, if you've ever been on an awkward double date with like, you have a friend and your friend has a wife and, and this wife is kind of a wallflower, kind of, kind of dull. And, and at a certain point, everybody just goes, let's see what, let's see what Amanda thinks. And everybody just kind of stares at the boring person. That's what that was. He's like, well, you know, he's just not feeling included. And it's sad. I mean, we're having this whole fun conversation. He's just not feeling included, guys. It's so dismissive and so wonderful. And he did the same thing to Carly Fiorina. You know, Fiorina... She's a she's a, a good debater. She does interrupt people a lot on stage. I would like to see some sort of statistical analysis. I don't know if it's just my perception, but I do get the perception she tries to interrupt people a fair bit when they're talking. Uh, and usually, in this debate particularly, when she interrupted people, it wasn't to say anything that was really of note. She kept saying things like zero-based budgeting without in any way explaining what that term means, which is the first rule of debate. The first rule of education, if you're going to use a term, you need to explain what the term means. You can't just throw out something like zero-based budgeting and expect that millions at home will cheer. And no one knows what zero-based budgeting is. Zero-based budgeting, for those who don't know, it just means that the budget procedures of government should all be taken back to zero, meaning that we should see every dollar that's spent on every program and how every tax dollar stacks up to every program. Instead of when we say that there's a budget increase, we all base it on what's the budget increasing this year as opposed to what is the total budget, right? We always look at how much did the, the budget of the EPA increase year over year. That's not zero-based budgeting and gives you a false perspective. She didn't explain any of that. She just kind of threw that out. Well, at one point, Fiorina's interrupting again, and Donald Trump, who just can't help himself, I mean, he is, he is on the attack all the time. As I've said before, fat lion, don't poke him. And, and fat lion kind of saunters over and then sits down for a munch on Carly Fiorina's head here is Donald Trump going after Carly Fiorina. You can be strong without being involved in every civil war around the world. Ronald, how Reagan, would you respond? 
Ronald Reagan was strong, but Ronald Reagan didn't. And Ronald Reagan in walked the away East. at Reykjavik. He walked away. He quit talking Can I finish when it was time? time to quit Can I finish talking. With my time? Why does she keep interrupting everybody? Yeah. <laughs> terrible. Yeah, I'd like to finish. Terrible, I'd like terrible. to finish my response, basically. You know. Okay, and it's it, what's what's funny about that again is here's Trump playing moderator. Right? I mean, Trump's not even involved in that conversation, right? It's Rand and Fiorina, and all of a sudden, here's Trump jumping in and just, oh, come on, Carly, let, let's let him finish. And it's just Trump big-shotting everybody, and it's really, really funny. Okay, so Trump ended up kind of maintaining. He, he did what he does. He's always entertaining. He's always, he's always funny. Uh, and I'm very glad he's a part of this process just for the fodder it, it supplies me doing shows like this one. Ben Carson is, is continuing to do well in the polls. And uh, he really didn't say much last night that was of interest. In fact, Ben Carson does something that's pretty smart. He doesn't always use every second of his time. This is actually an important thing. Most of the debaters feel the need. I'm given 90 seconds. I will use my 90 seconds. They will be used. I will use all 90 seconds of this. You don't have to. Sometimes, because the truth is, very few people watch this thing beginning to end. Right? When, they, when they take the ratings, they're taking the number of people who watched it for a certain period of time within the two hours. It's, it's, I don't know whether it's 15 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it is. It's not two hours. It's not, it's not 20 million people watched it for two hours. Right? It's 10 million people watched it for five minutes in the course of two hours. Most of us are going to watch this debate the way we're doing it right now. Right? We'll see clips of it. And Carson understands that, and so he doesn't feel the need to fill 90 seconds. If he speaks for 15 seconds, and it's a good 15 seconds, then that's great. So the only thing anyone will remember that Carson said last night was this. He was asked about the media attacks on him, and here was Ben Carson's response. Uh, well, first of all, uh, thank you for not asking me what I said in the 10th grade. I appreciate that. <laughs> but, uh... I'll just forget that follow-up there. <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is, you know, what we, we, we should vet all candidates. I have no problem with being vetted. What I do have a problem with is being lied about and then uh, putting that out there as truth. And I don't even mind that so much if they do it about, with everybody, like people on the other side. But, you know, when I look at somebody like Hillary Clinton, uh, who, who sits there and, and tells her daughter and a government official that, no, this was a terrorist attack, and then tells everybody else that it was a video, where I came from, they call that a lie. And, uh, we can pause it there. The, the media will make Ben Carson president if this continues. Seriously, because the media are so bad, and people hate the media so much, that whenever Ben Carson says stuff like this, we're talking like, you know, look at the crowd. Major ovation. And this, if, if, by the way, if he had said one more line, he actually wins all the primaries, right? If he, is, if he just says right there, if, if Carson says, the media are out to get me because I am a black Republican, and the media cannot stand the sight of a black Republican because they're racist. If he says that, Right? If he drops that line right there, he wins every primary outright. Every Republican primary he wins. Because we all believe that. We all know that's true. We all know that these attacks on Carson aren't just because he's conservative. It's because he's black and conservative. And so he's a living rebuke to the leftist self-perception that they represent all black folks because they're the voices of the minority. So you know, this is a good moment for Ben Carson. He didn't hurt himself. Rand Paul did hurt himself. Rand Paul made a very good point with regard to Marco Rubio. Rubio is talking about the child tax credit. Okay, the child tax credit is misnamed. Ru Rubio's wrong. 
Paul was right when Rand Paul said the, cha- the child tax credit is basically a welfare check. That, that is what it is because, again, it's going out to people who do not pay that much in taxes, so they're getting more back than they're putting in. Uh, but then Rand goes too far, as Rand always does, and he feels the need to slap at the military. And why Rand Paul thinks that in a Republican debate the day before Memorial Day that people are going to be like, yeah, let's cut the military budget to zero. Why he thinks that's a winning proposal is beyond me, but Marco Rubio ends up winning the night for himself by taking Rand Paul and basically just, I mean, from the third, from the third tier of the, of the wrestling ring, <laughs> jumping off of the rope and pile-driving him. Here is Marco Rubio beating Rand Paul about the ears on military spending. I do want to rebuild the American military. I know that Rand is a committed isolationist. I'm not. I believe the world is a stronger and a better place when the United States is the strongest military power in the world. Marco, Marco, how is it conservative? How is it conservative to add a trillion dollar expenditure for the federal government that you're not paying for? How is it conservative? How is it conservative to add a trillion dollars in military expenditures? You cannot be a conservative if you're going to keep promoting new programs that you're not going to pay for. I may respond more quickly, yeah. very quickly, Senator. We can't even have an economy if we're not safe. There are radical jihadists in the Middle East beheading people and crucifying Christians. A radical Shia cleric in Iran trying to get a nuclear weapon. The Chinese taking over the South China Sea. Yes, I believe the world is a safer... No, no, I don't believe. I know that the world is a safer and better place when America is the strongest military power on the, in the world. Right, and you can hear people, yeah! Right, I mean, yay military. We're Republicans, we like the military. Rand Paul apparently forgot that, He's, <laughs> which is really bizarre. Um, so that bad, bad moment for Rand Paul. And finally, finally, last clip of the day. We're going to go at least with regard to the debate, and then I have a couple other comments on, on a couple other topics. Jeb Bush, we have to at least give him, we have to let him talk, as Donald Trump says. We have to let Jeb have his time. Here is Jeb Bush talking about how he would repeal all of Obama's regulations. Sadly, he'll never get to do this because he'll never be president. Here is Jeb Bush. On the regulatory side, I think we need to repeal every rule that Barack Obama has in terms of work in progress. Every one of them. And start over. For those that are already in existence, the regulation of the Internet, uh, we have to start over, but we ought to do that. The Clean Power Act, we ought to repeal that and, and start over on that. The Waters of the United States Act, which is going to be devastating for agriculture and many industries, we should repeal that. We should repeal the rules because the economic costs of this far exceed the social benefit. Captain Awkward there uh, with, with his moment. We gave him his moment. It requires no comment. Okay, meanwhile... Uh, on, the, on the Democratic side of the aisle, it is amazing the double standard between media coverage of the right and media coverage of the left. Here is a clip that you won't see on any of the network news last night. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about it. You remember a couple of weeks ago, Donald Trump was, was at, a, at a, an event, and somebody in the audience yelled at him, asked a question about why Barack Obama was a Muslim or some such nonsense. And Trump didn't correct the guy. Right? He kind of laughed it off and he moved on. This led the news for a week, right? Why didn't Donald Trump say Barack Obama isn't a Muslim? He's a Christian. Not only is he a Christian, he's a devout Christian. Not only is he a devout Christian, he secretly canonized himself as a saint, and he may in fact be the Pope, right? Why didn't Donald Trump do any of those things? Okay, here is Hillary Clinton at a town hall, and you'll see the question, and you'll see the answer, not covered at all by the network news. And she says she's a great CEO. Every time I see her on TV, I want to reach through and strangle her. You know, I, I know that doesn't sound very nice, but 
and I, can... I wouldn't mess with you. <laughs> God, every time she laughs, like the maw of hell opens and she bursts forth with that horrible sound. Um, she, uh, it, look, she's laughing at, at a guy saying he wants to strangle a female candidate. Now, we know for a fact that if this were said about Hillary Clinton by anyone on the right side of the aisle, end of their campaign, right? They're sexist. They're terrible. Hillary Clinton accused Bernie Sanders of being a sexist for saying that he'd love Hillary Clinton as his VP. Can you imagine if this were said about Hillary Clinton? But, but Hillary gets away with it because Hillary is Hillary. And this is the media double standard, which brings me to the latest over at the University of Missouri. And I do want to take a moment to talk about what's going on at the University of Missouri. There have been false accusations all day today that the KKK has suddenly become active after 100 years of inactivity. They've suddenly been revived, and the entire cast of Birth of a Nation has arrived at the campus of University of Missouri in order to terrorize all the black students for raping white women or some such nonsense. And it, it, it's all crap. It's all not true. It's been debunked by the police. None of it is real. But this race hysteria at University of Missouri continues apace. And you can see the level of the, of the hysteria from, from an appearance I did last night. I was on Megyn Kelly's show, and we taped it beforehand and, and it aired during the debate. So the five people who weren't watching the debate actually saw me on Megyn Kelly. Um, but here's, here's what happened. I was on with, uh, with a, a lady on the other side. Forgive me, I can't remember her name. Uh, I can't remember her name because, honestly, she's too crazy for me to remember her name. But she, she starts babbling nonsensically about what was happening at the University of Missouri and how terrible things were. I guess her name is Nomiki Konst. I think that's her name. Um, and uh, she's a professional useless person. And, and here is what she had to say about what's going on at University of Missouri. And I want to break it down after she says it because I think it's important to understand where the media and the campus left are coming from. Well, okay, to, to be fair, these are not administration, th these, are, these are students, these are 20-year-olds who are reacting, and it's a very racially charged environment. You know, words matter. And so when that, th that letter was sent on behalf of an administration official, somebody who's supposed to represent the students to create, you look at the, the documents that Yale sends out, the application documents, and it's all about having an inclusive community. This well, guy was defending Halloween! Well, he wasn't defending Halloween. He was defending being offensive to, to a community of people that are being marginal. I mean, 7% of the Yale... He was saying if you want to go as Tatiana, no, the frog princess, face. you should be allowed to. No, no, no. He was, he, was, he was acknowledging that someone who shows up in blackface, it's okay, it's a joke. And well, you think that should be banned? You should, I, I think Halloween, that, that should be banned. And what if you want to, a guy who wants to dress like a girl? Should he be banned? Listen, there are the, the, the stereotypes. There's plenty of stereotypes that we have uh, changed over time. Things that would now be totally unacceptable. We that had this debate about things gender expression would be offensive if you if you want so well, a guy a dressed up as a as a female nurse that's not for that's white people offensive. to determine that's not these things are not for the people who are doing it to determine it is for those who feel hurt if you feel oh. hurt oh, that's fantastic i hope i hope you have young kids like just exactly my kids age okay so it's not for white people to determine right it's for everybody else to determine why because white people of course have white privilege, right? This is what we've learned. We've learned that white people have white privilege. So I do want to take a moment and define what we mean by white privilege. What does white privilege mean? Because we hear this phrase bandied about all the time. What is white privilege? What is white privilege? Well, uh, in order to discuss what exactly white privilege is, I think that it's important that we take a look at, at, at the definition that is proposed by the left for, for white privilege. So I took a look at the, the Southern Poverty Law Center definition. The Southern Poverty Law Center is a radical left group uh, that routinely accuses Republicans of all stripes of being secretive members of, of the John Birch Society or the KKK. Everybody's a racist, according to the SPLC. They are a, a, a 
hardcore left-wing crazy group. I mean, they're, they're so crazy that they actually drove a guy to try and shoot up the Family Research Center. They said the Family Research Council, Family Research Center, was a, was a hate group against gays, which drove a guy named Floyd Corkins to actually walk into the FRC with a gun and try to shoot people. He shot a security guard. SPLC is about as left as it possibly gets. So here is their definition of white privilege. They have a website, and the website is called tolerance.org because this is the way that it works. Tolerance, according to the left, means that we have to tolerate everything the left does, but the left doesn't have to tolerate anything that we do. Right? They can call the cops on us if we're offensive. So on their website, tolerance.org, and they want to use this website to teach children, children, like elementary school kids, about their white privilege, and they, they quote an article from a lady named Jennifer Holliday and her massively popular best-selling book, White Anti-Racist Activism, A Personal Roadmap, which has sold, as, as of now, a grand total of negative three copies, meaning that people went to her house, took the manuscript from her, and proceeded to burn it. So it's, it's negative three copies. Here is the definition of, of white privilege from her, from her Halcyon book, White Anti-Racist Activism, which sounds like maybe the worst book ever written. Here we go. White skin privilege is not something that white people necessarily do, create, or enjoy on purpose. Unlike the more overt individual and institutional manifestations of racism, white skin privilege is a transparent preference for whiteness that saturates our society. White skin privilege serves several functions. First, it provides white people with perks that we do not earn and that people of color do not enjoy. Second, it creates real advantages for us. White people are immune to a lot of challenges. Finally, white privilege shapes the world in which we live, the way that we navigate and interact with one another and with the world. Okay, the way that she describes white privilege is basically how cults describe the presence of God or thetans if you're a Scientologist, right? White privilege sort of attaches to you and there's nothing you can do about it and it's because aliens dropped bodies in a volcano several thousand years ago and they exploded and the ash attached to your soul, right? This is, this is what white privilege is. It attached to you and now you can't get it off no matter how hard you scrub and so you, got, and so you have to learn just to identify what white privilege is, right? White privilege is like the matrix. Do you want to see it or do you not want to see it? And so, and she goes on, she, she discusses what white privilege looks like. Here are some examples of white privilege. Seriously, per, here, she says there are perks to white privilege. Here's one of the perks. A perk is, quote, when you go to the Rite Aid, the flesh color Band-Aid generally matches my skin tone. And also, complimentary hotel shampoo generally works with the texture of my hair. This is white privilege you never knew that you were enjoying, is that when you go over to the grocery store to buy a Band-Aid, it matches your skin tone. Right? Because if you were black, it wouldn't match your skin tone because it's beige. There's another word for this. It's called the free market because there are more white people than black people in the United States. And so if you're going to sell a Band-Aid, you probably want to match the most populous skin tone, you would think. And the same holds true of Hotel Champ. Nope, that's white privilege. You're enjoying your white privilege every time you put on a Band-Aid. First of all, if you're a black person and your top priority in life is finding a Band-Aid of your skin color, let me suggest that you reprioritize. Okay, This is true regardless of color. Okay, there, there are other things that you get from white privilege, too. They say that there are advantages that attach to being white or being Jewish, which is like being white because Jews are successful. This is the way it works in the United States, is white is a const, constantly expanding group to include people of, of all nations, ethnicities, and creeds so long as they're successful, right? So Irish people, when they first got to the United States, were considered the underclass, and they weren't white, right? They weren't wasps. They weren't white Anglo-Saxon Protestants because they were Catholic, then as Irish people became more successful, suddenly they were white. Italians, same deal. They became white. Germans, same deal. They became now Jews, right? Back in the 1950s, white people were banning Jews from country clubs. Now Jews are the whitest people in America, right? I'm a white guy sitting here wearing my yarmulke with the, with the, with the very, very Jewish name, Ben Shapiro, right? So I'm a white guy. So what, what, what advantage is attached to me? 
They say, these advantages include skin color not working, quote, against me in terms of how people perceive my financial responsibility, style of dress, public speaking skills, or job performance, right? That's an advantage that attaches to you as a member of the white privileged class. So let me go through those briefly, right? I have the advantage of people not perceiving my, of people perceiving my financial responsibilities differently. So for example, as a white guy, I can get mortgages more easily subsidized from the government with bad credit. Oh wait, no, that's if I'm a black guy. Or if, if I dress you know, with saggy pants and somebody criticizes me because I'm wearing saggy pants and my, and my butt crack is showing, then that is an example of how I get, I get away with it because I'm white. Except that if you're black and you do that and anyone criticizes you, they're a racist. Dress codes are racist. And, and like I'm privileged because uh, public speaking skills, job performance, it's not like there are, specific there are specific statutes that protect me as white. Oh, wait, no, there are just specific statutes that protect people as black people, but not as white people. So white advantages from white privilege include also being disadvantaged. Um, so, and, and most of all, most of all, I love this. They say that white privilege includes people not assuming I got where I am professionally because of my race or affirmative action programs. That's white privilege. They assume that because you didn't if you're white. You didn't get there through an affirmative action program at the very least, because there are no affirmative action programs for white people. And so, so given the choice, so white privilege is, here's the choice, right? Given the choice between getting into Yale with a lower score, right, which is true for black folks in America on average, they get into universities with lower scores. Given the choice between getting into Yale with a lower score or being able to bitch about a black guy getting into Yale with a lower score, my white privilege is, it, it, I do, I feel privileged that I get to bitch about somebody getting into Yale with a lower score. I feel really privileged about that. It's a, real, it's a real winner for me. It's really helped me in my life that I get to complain that somebody else got in with a lower score than I did. This is the white privilege that we're talking about in this video. This is the white privilege this, this crazy lady is talking about. And, and that means that we can't say anything about it. We have to stay, stay silent. Really what white privilege is is a club with which to beat everyone who could possibly disagree with you. Right, which is why Tim Wolf, the president of the university, was, a, was somebody who enjoyed white privilege, but the coach at University of Missouri, who makes $3.1 million a year and is a white guy, but sided with this movement, he's not white privileged. Right? So the, the, the administrator who earns one-sixth of that salary is white privileged, even if he agrees with them, but the guy who's the coach and makes a bajillion dollars a year in taxpayer money, he's not white privileged. It is amazing how this works. Finally, I promised that I would close with this, and I really will because we're running late. I'm close with this because uh, I just have to show you this because it was fun. Yesterday, I was on HuffPost Live, and HuffPost Live is a, is a channel for the Huffington Post. They, they do like a live stream, and they have, they're have in you know, several million homes. By the way, whenever anyone says they're in several million homes as a channel, that just means you have the option to flip to their channel. It doesn't mean anyone's watching them. So you haven't seen this clip because no one has ever seen HuffPost Live. It's sort of a mythical, it's like a unicorn. It's mythical. It, it may exist. It may not exist. But I appeared on it yesterday. And this, this is, if you don't believe in media bias, if you don't believe what Ben Carson has been saying about media bias, this is demonstrative of media bias as, at its finest. And as I've said before, there's a reason left-wing networks don't really enjoy having me on, and it's because of things like you're about to see here. There's no question that last week he's risen in Republican estimation, specifically because of all the, the failed attacks on him and the, and the supposed exaggerations and lies that nobody on the left has been able to back up. Well, his, his, his own campaign admitted that they lied about the issue uh, of West Point, right? That what was written no, in his biography. Yeah, his own campaign. His own campaign that, said that he never actually applied for a scholarship. No, no, wait, 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 and in order, listen true. to me, please. 
Uh, his no. own his own campaign admitted that they never applied for a scholarship, or that Ben Carson he never, never applied for a scholarship. Applied for a scholarship, and and Politico had to revise both its headline and its lead and issue an editor's note. See, this is the sort of thing where Ben Carson is in I hope that, that you and the media continue to do this. The more you do this, the more you discredit yourselves, and the more people in the Republican field get to attack the media, which, frankly, I enjoy much more uh, than I'm a member of the media, a member of which, of which you are, Ben. Let's also just point out you are also a member of the so-called media here. But Not the mainstream media. I'm an opinion journalist on the right. I'm very clear about my agenda. You aren't. I'm very clear about my agenda. I have absolutely nothing to hide. Um, I'll say something. All right, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> this is why they don't like having me on, and this is why they lower my volume when, uh, when, the, when the anchor is talking. Because if you couldn't hear there, I'm saying over and over to her, you're lying, you're lying, you're lying. That's a lie, that's a lie, that's a lie. And this is why they don't like me having them on their programs. And they also don't like face-to-face -face interviews. They like it much better when I'm on Skype. So if you ever wonder why I'm not on, on CNN more or MSNBC more, that right there is, is pretty much why. By the way, later in the interview, at the very end of the interview, this, this, this host tried to revise her statements and got her revision wrong. And I said, even when you correct yourself, you're still lying. <laughs> so <laughs> it just it never ends with these folks. And as I say, Ben Carson may be president yet, yeah, thanks to people like the folks at HuffPost Live. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed the debate much more than I did. I made the sacrifice of watching it for you, dear listeners and, and dear watchers. And make sure that you stick around for tomorrow's episode when I'm sure we will learn that Ben Carson, in fact, lied about being married and, in fact, is married to several goats, a chicken, and a monkey of some sort. This is Ben Shapiro, and this is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 